Welcome to the Anchored in Truth podcast. Anchored in Truth is an online ministry of Safe Harbor Baptist in Georgetown, Kentucky. Visit us online at safeharborbaptist.org. You have your Bibles. Turn with me to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 1. As we begin a new sermon series today in the book of 2 Samuel in the Old Testament. And we are going to read... Uh, this chapter together, starting in verse 1. After the death of Saul, David returned from defeating the Amalekites and stayed at Ziklag two days. On the third day, a man with torn clothes and dust on his head came from Saul's camp. When he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David asked him, where have you come from? He replied to him, I've escaped from the Israelite camp. What was the outcome? Tell me, David asked him. The troops fled from the battle, he answered. Many of the troops have fallen and are dead. Also, Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. David asked the young man who had brought him the report, how do you know Saul and his Jonathan are dead? I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, he replied, and there was Saul leaning on his spear. At that very moment, the chariots and the cavalry were closing in on him. And when he turned around and saw me, he called out to me, so I answered, I'm at your service. He asked me, who are you? And I told him, I'm an Amalekite. Then he begged me, stand over me and kill me, for I'm mortally wounded, but my life still lingers. So I stood over him and killed him, because I knew that after he had fallen, he couldn't survive. I took the crown that was on his head, and the armband that was on his arm, and I've brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and all the men with him did the same. They mourned, wept, and fasted until the evening for those who died by the sword, for Saul, his son Jonathan, the Lord's people, and the house of Israel. David inquired of the young man who had brought him the report, Where are you from? I'm the son of a resident alien, he said. I'm an Amalekite. David questioned him, How is it that you were not afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And then David summoned one of his servants and said, Come here and kill him. The servant struck him, and he died. For David had said to the Amalekite, Your blood is on your own head, because your own mouth testified against you by saying, I killed the Lord's anointed. David sang the following lament for Saul and his son Jonathan. And he ordered that the Judites be taught the song of the bow. It is written in the book of Jashar. The splendor of Israel lies slain on your heights. How the mighty have fallen. Don't tell it in Gath. Don't announce it in the marketplace of Ashkelon. Or the daughters of the Philistines will rejoice. And the daughters of the uncircumcised will celebrate. Mountains of Gilboa, let no dew or rain be on you. Or fields of offerings, for there the shield of the mighty has de- was defiled. The shield of Saul no longer anointed with oil. Jonathan's bow never retreated. Saul's sword never returned unstained from the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty. Saul and Jonathan loved and delightful. They were not parted in life or in death. They were swifter than eagles, stronger than lions. Daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with luxurious things, who decked your garments with gold ornaments. How the mighty have fallen in the thick of battle. 
Jonathan lays slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were such a friend to me. Your love for me was more wondrous than the love of women. How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war have perished. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we read this passage, and we are reminded that your ways are higher than our ways. Lord, we look around us, we see this world full of trouble. We see our lives full of trouble. We see people all around us who fail, who sin, who fall short. We see that in our own lives. And we recognize as we see the needs of others and ourselves, the sin that is present in this world, we need your help. We need your help to live in a way that glorifies you. We need your help to live in a way that takes the focus off of ourselves and puts it on you. Because that is where hope lies. That is where life lies. When our lives are hidden with you through Jesus Christ. So Lord, today as we think on your word, we come hungry and we pray that you would feed us the bread of life. We come thirsty, and we pray that you would satisfy the thirst and the things that we long for through your presence. Lord, we pray this morning for other people, nations, churches around the world. We recognize that your kingdom is at work, not just here in this place, in this congregation, but in thousands, millions of places around the world. We pray for the country of Mexico and especially for our partners in Arroyo Seco, Esteban, and Alejandra, that you would encourage them this Lord's Day as they gather with your people there in just an hour or two, as they sing praises, as they hear your word, that you would strengthen your church, that you would draw people who do not know you to yourself. We pray for Northside Christian Church here in Georgetown, and for Pastor Nick and that congregation to remain steadfast in the gospel, to preach the truth of your word as they continue to minister uh, to this city. We thank you for the partnership we have with Transform Scott County and we share with Northside. We pray that you would continue to use them. We pray for the country of Yemen this morning in, in the Middle East as we've read in the news of attacks on the U.S. military coming from the country of Yemen and counterattacks and just the war that is present in that country and the, the blindness, God, to who you are. And we pray that you would work among the people there. Lord, we ask now that you would work among us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You all may be seated. And kids, if you'd like to go downstairs to your classes, you're welcome to do that. Or you're welcome to stay here with us as well. And if you have your Bibles, leave them open to Second Samuel. If you don't have a Bible... Please come see me. It would be our privilege and our uh, honor, really, to, to give you a Bible. We have Bibles here that we hold to, to give to people who come and worship with us because we believe that the Bible is where God speaks. Uh, God speaks to us through His words in the Bible. And that is why we are going to spend some time together now in His Word. A few years back, a magazine... Uh, published an article entitled, 10 Events That Changed America. And uh, this article ended up 
sharing some events, and maybe you recall some of these uh, things like the fall of the Berlin Wall and the end of the Cold War and how that changed America. Or the moon landing and the astronauts landing on the moon, the Vietnam War, or the September 11th attacks, among some other events. Now, as we look back over the the course of our country, but all of history, really, there are many important events that happen that change things, either for the better or for the worse. And so today, as we start this sermon series in 2 Samuel, this book marks a turning point that changed things in the life of the nation of Israel, the life of God's people, His chosen people in the Old Testament, and how God was fulfilling His promises to His people. 2 Samuel deals primarily with the reign of King David, Israel's greatest king. Right? He was a historical king. We, there's artifacts and ar- that people have discovered in the nation of Israel where we see David was a real king, just backing up, furthering the truth that God's word is true, that the Bible is true. And so the book of 2 Samuel recounts the life of David, his rise to power after Saul's death, his military victories over Israel's enemies, and David in many ways became kind of the model king for the nation of Israel. He was the king by which all future kings in Israel would be measured. He was the standard. And the book of Samuel, though, presents not only David's strengths and his victories and his accomplishments, it also presents his failures, his weaknesses, and his sins. David, we need to keep in mind, despite all the good things he did and all the things he accomplished as king, was also human. He failed. And because David, though, always confessed his failures, confessed his sin, owned his sin, and repented, and turned back to God, God honored that. When we, we read in the Bible that David was a man's, man after God's own heart, what's God's, God's heart? It's not that we're perfect. As we read earlier, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. God's heart is not that you'd be perfect. Why? Because he knows you can't be perfect. You're sinners living in a fallen world. God's heart is that when you fail, you trust Him. You turn to Him. You confess those sins and own them and turn to Him in faith. You know, David confessed the sins, and so God never rejected him. Unlike King Saul, his predecessor, who just made excuses for his sins, tried to just move past and not deal with them, David owned them, and God honored that. The life of David reminds us, though, that if God can use this man, this king, as we're going to see, who made some big mistakes, if God can use a man like that, a fallen man, then God can use people like you and I. And so we see that if we are willing to own our sins, to repent of our sins and to trust the Lord, God can use that. The greatest significance, though, in David's life is not that he was a great king. It's that he pointed to an even greater king that was going to come. One of his own descendants that the Lord promised would reign on the throne forever. A perfect king. And his name was Jesus. The book of 2 Samuel, as we read about the the king David, we are reminded we need a better king. Israel needed a better king. 
and we have a king who has come that we can follow. It starts, this book starts with David responding, first off, to situations before he's king that lead to God putting him on the throne. And he's responding to people around him who have failed. People who have let him down. People who've let the nation of Israel down. People who have failed in other ways uh, that, that comes out. And the question that we see confronting David today in this passage, and the question that often confronts us is, how are we going to respond when people around us fail? When people around us let us down? Are we going to respond with faith, holding to the Lord? And what does that look like? Are we going to respond in some way using the failures of others to elevate ourselves? Here's what the Lord wants to teach us through this passage. God uses those who respond to the failures of others in a way that prioritizes pleasing Him. God uses those who respond to the failures of others in a way that prioritizes pleasing Him. Listen. Every single one of us this week will have people around us who fail. We're going to have people who say things they shouldn't say. We have, we're going to have people who treat us certain ways that they shouldn't treat us. We are probably going to be doing those things ourselves. The question is, when those things happen, how are we going to respond? The thing that sets us apart as Christians from the world is we have the power of God in us to respond in a way that pleases God. And God gives us a picture here of what that should look like. And so as we walk through this passage, we should ask ourselves, God, is this me? Do I respond to the failures of others like this? Again, David's not perfect, but David was a man who walked with God. We can learn from people who walk with God. And that's what God wants to teach us. And ultimately, we know that because David acted in these ways that pleased God, he would become king in a way that it was clear, this is God's man. This is who God wants on the throne. David didn't just take it for himself. He didn't get there some way where he went around God's plan. And that's what we want people to say about us, that we are where we are because God put us here. Because God has us here. Not because we made our own way. We got that successful. No, we, we want everything about our lives to point others to say, God did that. God did that. So what does David teach us about how we can please God when others fail? First thing we see is that we should respond with seeking truth. All right, David was a man as we've already seen in the book of 1 Samuel, these books are really meant to be read together, who was committed to living for the Lord. But that would be tested. We all know that's true for life, isn't it? It's tested. When we say we're committed to living for God, we face all kinds of tests. And he receives news from a man here as we see, start out the passage. In verse 1, David has returned from defeating the Amalekites. In verse 2, says, on the third day, a man with torn clothes and dust on his head came from Saul's camp. So this man comes and torn clothes and dust on his head is really, a, it was a symbol that they were sad, right? That they were mourning a, a loss, grieving before God. 
And that's what this man, the, the picture he presents. This man comes and he bows down before David. And he tells him uh, that, that, as we keep, keep reading, that he had escaped from this battle where the Israelites had lost. King, the king was dead. King Saul was dead. And his son Jonathan were dead, was dead. Now, a little background. Uh, since we we didn't do the whole first book of 1 Samuel before this, I preached through 1 Samuel. It was in 2019. So uh, some of you all may or may not remember it, and some of you all weren't here. So I'm going to summarize. Uh, in 1 Samuel, we see uh, that uh, this man named Saul becomes king. So in the Old Testament, God chose Israel to be his people. Originally, God was king. God was king of Israel. They didn't need a human king. They were following God and his laws. That's what the design was. Well, eventually God puts some leaders in place, some judges and people like that. And then the people of Israel decide, no, we want a real king. We want a human king. God, you're not good enough. So they pick a king, or God gives them a king, and his name is Saul. And this king, Saul, was a king who disobeyed the Lord. He walked away from God. He ended up becoming prideful and wanting power for himself. And so the Lord determined that Saul's line, his descendants would not be kings forever because of Saul's sin. And so David instead is anointed as the successor to the king, the kingship of, and throne of Israel. What happened? Well, Saul became jealous. He, he, he became jealous that God would pick somebody else. And his own successor was alive while he was still king. And he, he felt this, this pull to defend his kingship. And he even attempted to kill David. Meanwhile, the, the king's, King Saul's son became one of David's, his closest friend, Jonathan. And so now David hears they both died in battle. You can imagine all the things running through his head. His best friend has died. His worst enemy has died. Now the easiest thing in this moment would be David saying, we need a king. And I'm the king, so I'm going to take the throne, and we're going to keep on rolling with this and make the best of it uh, uh, that we can. Right? That would have been the easiest thing. And it, he, hey, maybe he, as we all know, we, we like positions of influence and power. He could have pursued that in that moment. The throne was right there for the taking. But David valued something more than just becoming king. He valued finding out the truth about what's going on here in the situation. This is big news. This is life-changing news. And he's not just going to use some news and just accept it as face value for what it is and use it for his own advancement. So what does David do? He asks questions. He finds out details. He tries to discern if this man is telling him the truth. This man tells David. Verse 7, he says, King Saul called me. He asked me, who are you? And I told him, I'm an Amalekite. And he begged me, stand over me and kill me because I'm mortally wounded and my life is lingering. In other words, I'm suffering here. Take my life so I don't have to suffer anymore. I'm going to die anyway. So I stood over him and killed him because I knew that after he had fallen, he couldn't survive. I took the crown on his head, his armband, and here they are, David. They're right here. So you can see proof. Saul is dead. Here's his stuff. In verse 11 and 12, we see that David and his men and the people around him are just heartbroken, right? They're grieving. 
their mourning and wept. Now, here we read this story, and the news seemed straightforward. Like, okay, it seems like this really could have happened. Now, there's only one problem. It's not actually what happened. In 1 Samuel 31, we read the story of what actually happened to King Saul and Jonathan. Right? Saul was mortally wounded, yes. But he didn't ask this Amalekite man to do anything. He asked his armor bearer at the time to run a sword through him to end his suffering. And the man wouldn't do it. He wouldn't touch the king. So Saul fell on his own sword and took his own life to end his suffering. Now why would this man make up this story and not tell the truth to David? You know, he lied about what happened to Saul to make himself look good to the future king, to get in good graces with King David. He probably knew Saul had tried to kill David. He knew that, man, David, he can't like this guy. He knew that, or he probably thought that, that David might even be happy that he didn't have to run for his life anymore from King Saul and that now he would become king. And so here's the point. David didn't jump to conclusions when he just heard a story. He didn't hear things the way he wanted to hear them. Because, let's be honest, he would have, if there's a way he wants to hear the story, it's that, okay, Saul's gone, and I can move forward with my life. David wanted to know the truth about what happened. But even then, the truth was hard to come by. This man lied to him. He still doesn't know the real story at this point. And he had to sort out what this man was saying, what was true and wasn't tr- what wasn't true at all. And isn't life that way? Life is full of trying to sort out what is true and what is not. What is true about this situation I'm in and what's causing it and what is not. And you and I face a choice every day to strive to live by what's really the truth of what's going on here and not just filtering information through what we want it to be. Followers of Jesus are called to be people of truth. And Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If Jesus is the truth, and if he lives in you and I, and we love him, we love the truth. That's what we want to live by. Which means we want to seek it out. We want to know what's really going on. Not to just use something as an excuse to live a certain way. To respond to somebody a certain way. To move on with our life and forget about what's happened. Because... They said this, or this is what I thought, right? We want to seek out the truth to understand others, even when they've done things that have harmed us. What's the motive? Why have they done this? What's really going on? We want to understand the truth and be honest with ourselves about who we are, what we're feeling, and why we're feeling that way. Our desires, our actions. And if we find any sin, 
We want to be truthful about that. My heart is not right in this. And we want to confess those and bring that to God. Are we living by lies? Are we living by the truth of what God says? He forgives. He will make us new. Truth paves the way for the healing of God to take place in our lives. But when we can't face the truth, when we won't listen to the truth, it stunts the work that God wants to do. So let's be truthful. Let's seek truth about the situations we find ourselves in. And we know that God is the God who reveals truth. And he gives us the standard by which we can measure whether things are true or not. So when we pursue God, we will be pursuing truth. So let your life be marked by a commitment to seek truth when others fail. You find out what's really going on. Why did they fail? What happened? We don't just jump to conclusions and live that way. Second, we honor God in responding to the failings of others when we respond with just action. As we continue reading this account, we see a stark contrast between this man, this Amalekite man, and David, right? This man is looking out for his own interests. He's trying to to make himself look good before the king. David was a man who put aside his own desires for a time to make sure that what was right was done, that justice was done in the eyes of God. His attention and his thoughts turned towards justice for what happened to the king. Verse 13, it says, David inquired of the young young man who had brought him the report, where are you from? I'm the son of a resident alien. We're not talking about Martians here. I'll explain. And he said, I'm an Amalekite. Right? Important detail here. He says he's an Amalekite. Big deal. Well, we read in the first verse that David is returning from defeating the Amalekites. So this man already knows he's in trouble just because of who he is. Right? And then we read that he was a resident alien. A resident alien is another word for a person who is from a different country who made themselves subject to the laws of Israel. They essentially were brought in to the nation of Israel from outside. And Leviticus 24 talks about how they should submit to the, the, the laws, the food laws, the ceremonial laws, all the things that Israelites did, these residents, a- aliens had to do, right? So the Amalekite would be expected as a resident alien to submit to Saul as his king, to see him as the king that God had appointed over him, which means this man would never lay a hand on his king, even if he asked him to, just like the armor bearer did in 1 Samuel. And so David recognizes, hey, something's off here. Something is not right. This man is guilty. And so David questioned him, how is it that you were not afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? As we know in 1 Samuel, David had multiple opportunities to kill Saul himself. 
He could have easily seen those as opportunities that God had put and said, hey, Saul's right in front of you. You can take his life, end your suffering, become king. The bad king's gone. The good king's on the throne. But he didn't do it because he feared God, trusted God's plan more than his own and taking it himself. And he recognizes this Amalekite man is not there. So by the Lord's guidance, the insight of the Lord, this man, David sees this man's heart. As a result, verse 15 and 16, David executes justice. He puts this man to death because he claimed to have killed the Lord's anointed. The irony of it all is that this man actually didn't even kill Saul. He ends up dying for something he didn't actually do because he lied about it to make himself look better. Now, the point here is that we should not just go around executing people who lie to us. All right, that is not the point. The point is that David is a man who seeks to be just in how he treats others because he fears God more than man. David's instinct, his conviction to sin was that right would prevail. To do what was right in the eyes of God in response to those who were doing wrong around him. That's not easy. When everybody around us is in sin, when people around us are failing, it would be easy to just join in, to join what they're doing, or to use their wrongs for ourselves in another way. But David is is convinced he wants to do what is right before God. But even then, his best attempts at doing what is right fall short. This reminds us that justice here on this earth, in this world, is imperfect. And while we should always strive for justice and to do what is right, our attempts will often fall short. And we shouldn't just give up. We shouldn't get discouraged. We are still called to live in a way that pleases and honors God. But it reminds us we need a better judge. We need one who will perfectly be just all the time because we're going to get it wrong. And we know that God is the perfect, just judge, that he knows all of our hearts. He knows your heart today. He knows exactly what you're thinking, what you're feeling, what you're thinking about others, what you're doing with your life, how you're going to spend your time this afternoon. God knows all those things. He knows the absolute truth about every single one of us. And he is just in how he will deal with us, for better or worse. David was a king who sought to deal justly with this Amalekite man. And that's a good thing. God will will deal justly with every single one of us through his son, his eternal king, Jesus Christ. He, this, this king who will deal justly with us is also the Lamb of God who died for justice. He died to pay the penalty, the just penalty for the sins of his people so that God's justice for sinners could be satisfied in some other way than they're taking justice themselves. And all who trust in what Christ has done means that our justice is put on Jesus. And he offers that gift 
of forgiveness and just being made right and righteous in God's eyes today to you through a turning from your own sin and a trusting in what Jesus has done through his death, resurrection, and ascension. And the way to receive this is simply believing that Jesus took that for me, that I deserve God's justice. My sin deserves it. And Jesus took it. And I love him for it. That's faith. I want to live my life for this Jesus who took that for me. If you have never acknowledged it, today is the day. Don't wait. Because we all stand before a just judge. And what will God say when we stand before him? That's the question. If you and I want to be people that God uses as followers of Jesus, we have to seek to respond to sin around us in the world, failures of people around us, by being just. To do what pleases God. That means we don't join in the wrongdoing. We don't get too harsh or unfairly harsh with people when they fail. We don't try to punish others by teaching them a lesson. That's not being just. That's using it for ourselves. We look to the example of Jesus in 1 Peter 2, 22-23. He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. How do we live justly in this world? We entrust, ultimately, justice to God. We treat others fairly. We work for what is right. But in the end, when all is said and done, we trust what has happened to God. We don't have to do it all ourselves. We don't have to take vengeance ourselves. We don't have to make up for what others have done ourselves. We trust God to be just. So we hold out being right and fair and promoting what is just in our world. We also hold out mercy of Jesus. People need Jesus. So we act justly by doing both and ultimately leaving it in God's hands. Third, we respond to the failures of others and please God in doing so when we respond with godly grief at their failures. After David hears about Saul and Jonathan and their death, he writes this incredible lament, a eulogy, essentially, for these two men. And he starts in verse 17. You can read the whole thing, um, but it goes on for about 10 verses. And it's really broken down into three different stanzas, this lament. One starts in verse 19, one starts in verse 25, one starts in verse 27. And each stanza begins with this phrase, How the mighty have fallen. How the mighty have fallen. Now, you hear in that just David's sadness that these mighty people who of God have fallen. They're no longer there. And what's most amazing about this passage is that there is not one negative word about King Saul coming out of David's mouth. Instead, it's filled with lines like this one, verse 23. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, they are swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul. 
Imagine what he's saying here. You daughters of Israel, weep over this man who tried to kill me. Weep over him. Who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet. Who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. You talk about loving your enemies. This is it. Think about that. After Saul, all that Saul had done to him. David had nothing but good things to say about the man. No anger, no revenge, no bitterness. This is faith, life-changing faith, the presence of God in a person's life lived out. This is what God does. And it grieves this man that God's appointed king, even a bad one, a sinful one, had died. And he grieves that other nations, pagan nations around Israel, where Israel was supposed to be a light and to show them how great their God was, that these other nations would now look at Israel and say, these are God's chosen people. Look at these failures. We defeated them. They're weak. What kind of God do they serve? It grieves David that other nations could say that about his God. And you can hear David's agony. How can it be that people who oppose God stand in victory over God's people? Verse 20, we read this. Do not tell it in Gath. Don't tell those people. Don't announce what has happened in the marketplace in Ashkelon. These are places where God's enemies lived. And David's saying, don't talk about it there. We don't want people to know what has happened to God's people. It would bring shame on the name of our God. Or the daughters of the Philistines will rejoice. And the daughters of the uncircumcised, which represents all the people who aren't God's people, will celebrate at the downfall of God's people. Throughout this eulogy, what David grieves here is the harm done to the reputation of God. David grieves that shame would be brought to the name of the Lord and his people. He's not concerned about becoming king. He's not concerned about his own glory or recognition as the leader of God's people. He wants God to be seen rightly. And he grieves that in the death of Saul and Jonathan, that's not the case. Paul Tripp says, You can know all you need to know about a man's heart or a woman's heart by what he celebrates and what he mourns. So how do you respond when others fail? Do you celebrate when somebody fails? When your enemy fails? Do you mourn when somebody you don't like, that political candidate that you don't like, fails? Does your response consider God at all? Are you mourning when somebody fails because it reveals that person hates God in their life? Are you mourning that glorifying God is missing in some way from their life and their failure proves it? We face real temptations 
to respond in ungodly ways when people around us fail. The person that's going for that same job we're going for. Do you celebrate when an unbeliever falls or fails? Because it proves that you're living life the right way and they're living it the wrong way. And it proves that you're doing it right when they fail. While it is good that sinful people living in sin are confronted with the fact that they have need in their life and they have consequences for their sin, that's a good thing because it might open them up to the fact that they need a Savior. They need one who will forgive them and change their hearts. We should also grieve at the state of their souls that led them there. The consequences they're suffering because they have sin in their life that God hasn't forgiven or redeemed. It should move us to pray for people. As a church, do we grieve when other churches that believe the Bible preach the gospel struggle? Or do we see them as competition and, hey, this means we're doing right and they're not? No, the church exists for God's glory and not our own. And it should grieve us when any church that believes God's word is struggling. We should mourn in our lives when we sin, when we fail. Because any sin in our life that's that's there, that's evident, means we're robbing God of glory in some way ourselves. We should mourn that our lives, in some way, big or small, don't show others rightly who God is. When you go to school tomorrow, when you go home tomorrow, when you go to your workplace tomorrow, consider, does my life show others rightly who God is. And if there's something in our life that doesn't, we should mourn over that. Because what we should long most for as Christians is for people to see the God that we know through us. His power and His presence and how He's changing us and growing us. We live in a you-do-you world. You do you. God says, no, your reputation among others matters. Matthew 5.16, Jesus says, Let others see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven because they see you. They see your reputation. And they want to glorify God. And people see us in all kinds of ways. Online, personally, in our homes, schools, workplaces, all kinds of settings. And we should have godly grief. We should mourn when others fail in a way that paints an inaccurate picture of God. When we fail, when we sin, and we paint an inaccurate picture of God with our lives. To our kids, to our friends, to our family, to people who don't know Jesus. David was a man that God could use. And God would eventually give him greater influence as a king. Why? Because he knew the Lord. He wasn't perfect, but he trusted and sought to honor the Lord ultimately above himself, even when others failed. It's easy. It's not easy. The the temptation is strong to see the failings of others as opportunities for ourselves. 
as a way that we can prove ourselves to justify what we want, to get what we want, to make us feel good. But when Jesus is Lord of our lives, when his power and his presence rule our lives, we become more like David here, people who God can use. Not perfect people, but people God can use who influence others and point them to our God by valuing truth, seeking to live justly, grieving things that harm the Lord's reputation when others fail and sin around us. Let us long for people who know Jesus in such a way that we want our lives and our responses to show a true picture of our God to others to show that we value Jesus more than we value ourselves, more than we value what we want. And by doing so, we will show that Jesus is the worthy king of our lives, the Lord of what we're doing, that they should follow him too. And let's pray together. Father, we praise you for your word and how you teach us to deal with every situation in life even the failings of people around us. Lord, we are so thankful. As we live in a world where we see people sin, we see failures, we see people falling short of what they should do all the time, that you show us what to do and you give us the power to do it as Jesus lives in us. Father, we praise you. We thank you. You are a good Father. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.